And I think just as I would, I would say to you at the beginning, all work in the Roman Empire, almost practically, was done by slaves. I mean, in this culture, even at times, doctors were slaves. Teachers were slaves. Close friends of the emperor were slaves. In fact, just to put it in your, in your mind, it has been estimated that there was as many as 60 million slaves in the first century of the Roman Empire. So understand that when Paul gave this admonition here, it was radical. Now, sometimes, and I'm going to be brief here on this, there were bonds of loyalty and affection in history between a master and a slave. A man by the name of Pliny writes to a friend that is deeply affected because his well-loved slave had died. And I've read things like that, and there is a principle of that. I would say that's very rare. But basically, the life for the slave was mostly terrible. Uh, Bradley, he wrote a historical book on slavery and society at Rome. He summarized the situation this way. He said, the record of fact shows that Roman slaves, like those in the Americas, were bought and sold like animals were punished indiscriminately, and they were violated sexually. They were compelled to labor as their masters dictated and were goaded into compliance through intimidation. They were the ultimate victims of exploitation. In fact, the truth is, is that slaves possessed few legal rights, they lacked honor, they were subjected subjected to whatever punishments their masters would deem appropriate, and they were sometimes treated with just hideous cruelty. They were permitted often no legally sanctioned marriage or family bonds. They could not even keep their own children born to them while they were in slavery. They could be separated from their spouses if that's what the slave master wanted. Aristotle, you've heard that name, said that the slave, quote, is a living tool. In other words, he's no better than a beast who happens and is able to talk. It's a living tool. Cato, another writer in the Roman Empire, gives advice to a man who was taking over a farm. And here's what he said. He must throw out everything that is past its work and old slaves, too, must be thrown out on the, the scrap heap to starve. And it's a brutal, brutal environment. Gaius, the Roman lawyer, said a master possessed the power of life and death over the slave. Remember a couple of weeks ago, there was pater familias, the absolute power of the father in the home that continued all the way up as the children grew. Here, it's very similar that a master would possess the power of life and death over a slave. In fact, beloved, if a slave ran away, he was branded on his forehead with an F, and F stood for fugitives, and it meant that he was, run, he was a runaway. So he was either branded, or in many cases, that slave would be killed. In fact, there's a man by the name of Augustus who crucified a slave because he killed his pet 
quail. Brutal. Vidius Polio flung a slave still living into savage eels in his pond because he broke a crystal goblet. I, I just say, listen, as you see how radical this is, when Paul says to you, men and women or students, you need to obey your earthly masters. I mean, it was radical. A Roman writer said, whatever a master does to a slave, undeservedly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. Westerman, in a book that he wrote on the slave system of the Greek and Roman antiquity, said that slaves were whipped, they were mutilated, they were imprisoned in chains, they had their teeth knocked out, their eyes gouged out, and they were thrown to wild beasts, and in some cases they were crucified, and all of that for rather trivial offenses. I mean, the terror of the slave was that he was absolutely at the caprice of his master. And so, beloved, listen, as we walk into that this, this week and next week, understand it is against that backdrop that Paul addresses the truth about work and masters. Now, let me be clear here. The practice of slavery does not justify its existence. Paul is not sanctioning here or giving a theological basis for slavery. What Paul is doing, beloved, is he's assuming the presence of slavery. Just as we assume that we live in California and we understand some of the laws that come out from our governor that we would not support. Paul is writing under the Spirit of God. He's assuming the presence of slavery, and he helps us understand what it means to live responsibility or to live with responsibility in this context. I mean, slavery always involves the ownership of another person, and that is a deprivation of their freedom. And it was the truths of Scripture that led, obviously, to its elimination. MacArthur said this, he said, the European and American slave trade that lasted past the middle of the 19th century was a clear violation of scripture, despite the rationalizations of many Christians who were involved in it. And I think we understand that. So Paul then addresses the importance between slaves and masters, and then by way of application or by way of implication, the importance to all employer and employee relationships. That's where the text lies. Now, the focus as we turn our attention to this is not on your rights, which is the 21st century which we live in, but on the greater principle if you can grasp this, of mutual submission. Look back in 521, he's really onto the same thought, submitting to one another out of fear or out of reverence for Christ. 
So here, this is not the labor union telling you what your role is and what you should say and how you should sue. It is focused, if you will, on the greater principle that exists in the home, that exists with children, that exists with parents, and now it exists here, both with those who work and those who are bosses, okay? But I want you to know that in all five verses, uh, they are placed there with a, re- with a view to our relationship with Christ. So what do you mean? I just mean this, that he's at the center of it all. That's what's important. You say, what do you mean, Scott? Look at verse 5. It says, with a sincere heart, here it is, as you would Christ. Verse 6, he says, not as I service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, There's that phrase, doing the will of God from the heart. So as you would Christ, as servants of Christ, look at verse 7, where it says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. (laughs) Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Curios, that's Christ. And then in verse 9, masters do the same and stop threatening, knowing that he is both, who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And so he is their master and ours, and our master is in heaven. Now, this is very consistent here with verse 21 of chapter 5. Look back, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Look at verse 22, wives submit to your, hus- to your own husbands, and there it is, as to the Lord. And in chapter 6, 1, children obey your parents, what? In the Lord. So all of this is done with a view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned, this text directs us to two specific commands, There's a command given to slaves, sometimes it's called bondservants, and then there's a command given in verse 9 to the masters. And so those of you, and I hope that's all of us, who desire to walk worthy, to live in mutual submission, to be filled with the Spirit, will follow these commands. And then what Paul's going to do is after he gives these commands, as you'll see in a moment, he'll give the reasons for the commands. But let's just dive in. First command to those who work. You'll note it says in verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Stop there. Now, in some translations, it, say, it says bondservants. In some translations, it says slaves. What is it? Well, it's douloi. It's the word for slaves. So here's the command. Here's the command for them, and by implication to you, obey your earthly masters. Here, slaves refers to the status or the attitude of being a bondservant or slave. It is in this function, in this culture, a place of service, and in most cases, not really a matter of choice. Now, what does the scripture say to these slaves, to these bondservants, to you who will go to work tomorrow morning? It says, obey your earthly masters. 
It's the same word as the word that was used in chapter 6-1 for a child to obey their parents in the Lord. It's hupokuo. Remember, it just means to listen with your ear and then uh, hupo is under. So when you put it together, it just means to listen under. It means that you need to listen to them. You need to obey them. You need to hear them. And the word for you, like I know that our culture doesn't care about this, is that you need to obey, and it's in the present tense. In other words, you have a responsibility at work. It it would probably be fair to say that it's the employer's job to determine what must be done, and in most cases, how it should be done. It is the employee's job to obey his employer. The exception, of course, is when you are instructed to do something sinful or something immoral. He's not talking about that. That's enough said. So here, the command is to obey. Look what it says there in 6.5. It uses this little phrase, earthly masters. In other words, I think Paul is just trying to say, this isn't your lot in life forever. You need to obey what is a temporal master, and he's only an earthly master or a temporal master because in 6.9, you have a master who is in heaven. And so, beloved, enough to say that here is a command that a wise, walking, spirit-filled believer is to obey those in authority over them. And you can understand from what I read earlier in the historical setting, this is absolutely radical. I mean, just for a moment, step back and put yourself in a slave's shoes. And you're a slave in the first century. And you hear the gospel. And you respond to the gospel. And all of a sudden, for the first time in your life, you have a new status in your life. You went from being a son of darkness to a son of the light. You went from being in bondage of the darkness to being called now a a son of light. You went from being under a ruler and an oppressor, whether it be your own flesh or the devil, and now you have a new Lord that now once you were seen as fighting against God, but now you are loved by God. Now you are sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You are then therefore placed into the family of God. You now become an heir of God. You are now a child of God, if you will. What an exalted position. Blessed be, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And you're walking out with a new identity and a new understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God and then you go back to work after worship as a slave with no respect with no authority you take abuse and just maybe just maybe they were chafing if you will under the Roman rule I mean after all the slave could have said Jesus is my Lord and why would I answer to you Now, the question would be then, what does Paul uh, command those who work to do, okay? That's the question. How do you actually fulfill this command and obey your earthly master? 
What falls under this first command is four distinctive marks in obeying your master. So main point is obey your boss. And then here's how to do that. And if you're going to do it, you need to remember, number one, to have an attitude of respect. Secondly, you need to have a heart of integrity, okay? Thirdly, you need to remember the role as a servant. And number four, you need to recognize and remember the reward that comes from the Lord. And I would say these distinctive marks fit when he wrote and they fit for you this morning. I mean, I recognize even as I was studying this week that some of you sit in here as bosses and some of you sit in here as employees of those bosses. The word will speak directly to that. But I really believe here as we talked about the gospel in the weeks past comes home, I think it would be fair to say that the gospel ought to come into the workplace. Well, very well, how do I do that and in what way do I do that? Number one, there's an attitude of respect. An attitude of respect. Look at the text in verse five. It says, obey your earthly masters, and here it is, with fear and trembling. Here is an attitude of respect, and often we think of slavish fear before a powerful human leader or slavish fear before a powerful boss. It's not really the point here. Here is the attitude of respect, not before an abusive boss. Here it is, but a fear and trembling before the presence of God for the work that he has given you. In other words, it's not a slavish, cowering fear of one over you. It is an attitude of respect, of fear, and, and, and I take that fear to, to be a respectful fear that as you walk into the marketplace, you're not working for that boss anyways. Your labor is to be done unto the Lord and for the work that he has given you. And so the work is carried out with respect because we are working off a higher principle. Masters in this day ruled by fear, but you have a higher principle. You have a master in verse 9 who is in heaven. And as you conduct yourself, as you get in the car tomorrow, as you drive in, there ought to be not a complaining, grumbling, joyless attitude. There ought to be this thought, wow, God's given me this job as it is for today at least, and I'm here to walk into that place with an attitude of respect. Certainly, beloved, you remember Philippians 2.12, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, yeah, there it is, You've, there's our word again, so now not only in my presence, but much, Paul speaking, much more in my absence, and then this famous statement, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, far from coasting on grace, which we rest in grace, we are to conduct ourselves, work it out. He's going to work in you, next verse, but there is to work it out with fear and trembling because 
we serve such an awesome and holy God. So carry out your work with fear and trembling, not just when it's easy and reasonable, but obey your boss, even if it's not how you would do it, except for sin. You're not going to sin in that case. So here he says, this is your responsibility. He says, with an attitude of respect. Secondly, though, I'll just keep moving here. Not only an attitude of respect, but look at verse 5. It says, with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. So secondly, is a heart of, I'll call it, integrity. Conduct yourself, beloved, you men and women, with a sincere heart. It, It just really means with singleness of heart, with an undivided heart, that as you go to work, there's no ulterior motive, that there's no hypocrisy, that there's no duplicity, but integrity. Now that word, you see it there in verse 5, sincerity, is somewhat fascinating. It comes from two Latin words, sine, which means without, and the other word is sere, which means wax. So that word there in verse 5 means to be without wax. And that word in the biblical times came from the world of making pottery, okay? Making pottery. Dishonest potters would cover up the cracks in their pottery by filling them with wax. And as they filled them with wax, it might not be detected. But if the pottery was held up to the light before purchase, the wax would show up in what they said was a lighter hue. So good pottery, beloved, was stamped with the words sincere. Good pottery, if the guy was truthful, was pottery without wax for proof of its quality. It's interesting that the Greeks had a corresponding word that meant sun-tested. And so, beloved, listen, you today, as you go out this week, your work needs to be marked, mine, by integrity that no cracks would be detected. In other words, there's something different in your testimony. There's something different in your motive. You not only come in with an attitude of respect, but you come in with a heart of integrity where no cracks can be detected, where you are sun-tested, and herein lies, beloved, our testimony for believers. I mean, I would just ask you, who respects a careless, late, unfaithful, and complaining worker. In fact, I just have to tell you just personally, I worked at a grocery store for about eight years and uh, no longer in business. It was called Alpha Beta. And I did everything in that store over the years and kind of worked myself all the way up to... I had the joy of even managing the safe, and I had one time the joy of a guy sticking a 44 Magnum in my temple 
He didn't pull the trigger, I'm here. Um, but he, I mean, all these things happened, but I just figured that sometimes people were so unhappy at work, so grumpy to be there, that I was trying to be a testimony. If I just walked in and said, hey, praise the Lord, this is what he's got for me today at Alpha Beta. And if I was just joyful, I recognized that it, it made a difference. But here is a heart of integrity with no cracks, sun-tested. Maybe you've heard of the salesman who called on a successful contractor with a bid. And so he comes into this contractor and he has a, a bid for a large job the contractor was about to begin. He was invited into the contractor's office where they chatted for a moment before the secretary came in and summoned the contractor into another office. So alone, the salesman noticed that there was a bid from the competitor's firm on the contrast, contractor's desk with all the numbers clearly written. The total amount of the bid, however, was hidden and it was covered, if you will, this is say like here's the whole bid, all the layouts right here, and then the total amount was covered by a, a small orange juice can, can. And this salesman, unable to contain his curiosity, he picked up the orange juice can to see the final number of the bid. And when he did, thousands of BBs came pouring out of the bottom of the can which had been cut out and they flooded over the surface of the desk and they rained down on the floor. You can, you know, there, there it goes. And without saying a word, the salesman turned and walked out of the office. Listen, he, he's working for the contract. He's working for the bid. He's not with fear and trembling before a holy God. Let me just ask you, how do you work? You work as unto the Lord? You work with an attitude of respect, even though sometimes it's not always worthy of that? Are you quick to listen? Are you quick to hear? And I'm just being telling you the text. Here's what he's telling the slaves. And by the Spirit of God, he's mentioning this to us by implication to those who work. In fact, look at the text again. Look at it in verse 5 where it says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. Here's the phrase. As you would, I love this, Christ. As you would, Christ. Look back in verse 21. Submitting to one another, 521. Out of reverence for Christ. Wives, 522. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And so he says, as you would Christ. Listen, you work for Christ. You may have an earthly master, but one day, and even now, we have a heavenly master. So choose joy over complaining, if you will. In fact, he goes on, look at the text, not only as you work for Christ, not verse 6, by way of eye service. Stop there. I think you know what that means. It means working only when the boss is present, okay? And then when he's absent, you become a sloth. I hope not. Have you ever seen a sloth? I just saw one. I think they're the most fascinating creatures. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask, why, Jesus, did you create them? I saw one in Dubai. 
You say, how can you see one in Dubai? I went to this place called the Cube, and the Cube is a cube, and it's, it's, uh, it has air conditioning in it, and they have animals from all over the globe, and one of them was a sloth, and I saw them. I saw them in the tree. Of course, you had to look careful. He's not moving. He's not walking. He's just kind of draped. <laughs> and I was trying to call out to him, and he didn't even live to set up. He didn't even move. In fact, I thought he might have been dead. So listen, when you go to work, don't be slothful. You don't, you know, not just to please the boss, not by way of eye service, okay? And so here, this obedient servant is to walk in obedience and not make a superficial showing, but he does it with a sincere heart, a heart of integrity that works in his presence or absence. So not by way of eye service, just let the Lord examine your heart, but he's not finished. Look again at verse six. He says, he says nor by the way of eye service, look at the next phrase, as people pleasers. In other words, when you work only under his eye or her eye, you forgot that you have a heavenly master who knows all. And here, when you work that way, you have the, the, the propensity to become a people pleaser. In other words, you're working with an ulterior motive to be seen and to please that one when really our goal at work is to please the Lord. Look back in chapter 5, briefly, just in verse 10. It says, and try, in 5.10, to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so, you're not a people pleaser. I mean, this just happened to me hundreds of times when I was working at that grocery store. So sometimes after I would be checking, you know, then they'd say, okay, I might have even been the key person. I'd go check out of my check register and I'd go back to the back wall where I had to fill the soda wall. Okay, you, you know that. You go there and the soda wall's back there. And when you get there early in the morning, it's all full, it's nice. But by the time I was working at night, the soda wall looked like Swiss cheese. Now, I either had two options to do what to do there. I, I could have done what I think many people would have done, workers. They just come, they reach to the back of the wall, and then they bring the can up. They reach to the back of the wall, bring the next, you know, sodas up, reach to the back. And what they do is they give a front face to the soda wall. And I, I just, I was always convicted by that. If you're going to do it, do it right. Not because you want the boss to walk by and see what I call a Hollywood set in the soda aisle. It's just boarded, it's faced up, but there's nothing behind it. So I would have to make a list, go in the back with my dolly, you know, put those, all those sodas on and bring them out and fill the soda wall. So listen, I, I think here's what Paul's saying. You're not just fronting something to look good. There's a principle in your heart out of the goodness of God who redeemed you to do your work with an attitude of respect and to do it with sincerity, if you will, and integrity of heart, not pleasing people, not by way of eye service, but a spirit-filled slave, bondservant, doesn't need to be watched. In other words, you're not just skating at work. 
You're just not hanging out at the break room. You're just not at the water cooler, as we would say. No, there's a principle in you with joy. I think this is a little bit what Paul is saying here, is that you work in his absence, you work in his presence, you work with an attitude of respect, a heart of integrity, rendering obedience to your boss without hypocrisy, with a singular eye to please Christ. You say, well... Well, pastor, I'm glad you say that. Um, My boss goes to church here. (laughs) In fact, he might be sitting right next to me or over in the other row. Does the Bible have a word for you? Of course it does. If your boss is a believer, look at this next scripture. I'll follow it up on the screen. Move to the next one. Let all those, see, it's still language in biblical times, under a yoke... As bondservants, douloi, it could say slaves, regard their own masters, that's a boss, that's just a curios, lord, as worthy of all, what? Honor. Honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those, here's the point in 6.2, who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. I like that. Not that they wouldn't with an unbelieving boss, but serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And Paul told Timothy, teach and urge these things. I love that little line there where it says... um, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Listen, if you work for a believer, you ought to be the bright light in that place. Amen? I mean, I just think this has got to be part of our work ethic, ours as believers, that we work as unto the Lord. That's, that's what he's saying. There, if he's a believer, go to the next slide. You just write that one down, and here's another one. Bond servants, douloi. Slaves, slaves is actually better, okay, are to be submissive. Now, it's interesting there. He didn't say obey. It's very similar. You're to submit. You're to get under to, the, to their own masters, what? In everything. Now, listen, it's qualified, not sin. We understand that. But if they give you a direct word, then we ought, to, we ought to be submissive under them if it's not sin. In everything, they are, the bondservants, to be well-pleasing, this is us, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, here's the point, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Listen, you don't know who's watching all the time. I, I would share this. It's not in my notes, but my wife will probably say, don't use it then. Um, my kids worked at a restaurant, the three older ones, and they were, Johnny was a, Johnny was a waiter. Kyle was a waiter, worked in the back room, and um, Christine worked, and they'd get home like at 10 o'clock, and the house would just come alive. But I, but I remember, I met their boss one time, 
And he started to come to uh, the church where I was at down south. And I said, hey, nice to meet you. I think I knew him from before a little bit. What brings you back to our church? He, I just remember he told me because of how hard your children work and how much love they have for each other. I wanted to see what that was all about. And I was just struck. I mean, the kids were really young. I had them working out when, at that restaurant at eight, seven. No, I didn't. <laughs> I think they were probably 18, 20. And I thought, not about me. What a testimony about them. And I just think this is where these kind of things get put into practice. Be submissive to their own masters and everything, right? They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything, here's what I like, they may adorn the doctrine of God and it says our Savior. So listen, here's a, here's a place for work. Listen, when a believer sits with his boss in a worship service, he does so as an equal brother in Christ. But on the job, he is to submit to the authority of his boss because that witnesses his submissiveness to a higher authority of God's word or to the higher authority of God's word. Um, so here, obey with an attitude of respect, also with a heart of integrity. You... You are a steward of God who has tasked you to work. Like sometimes people ask me, are you, are you afraid to preach? I get, and I'm like, no, are you, I say usually no. I mean, there's a fear of it and trembling, okay? But they said, are you afraid to get up before people? No, but listen, I don't say that in any sense of pride. I have one audience here this morning, and it's God. I just want to get his word right. So I'm not always concerned if I'm at Southern Chapel on Thursday or I'm before you today. I'm mostly concerned that my eye and that my service is on him, and I render it as I can unto him because I answer to him because I have a master in heaven. Amen? So listen, you do the same where you find yourself at. Obey with an attitude of respect and a heart of integrity because you are a steward of what God has given you. One last verse, look. 1 Peter chapter 2, servants. It's probably douloy again. You see how they're just different? Be subject underneath to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the what? What does it say? To the unjust, that's to encourage you if you feel that way. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing. For what credit is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? Now you get that. If you're foolish, you're going to, there's no credit to that. If you make a dumb decision, if you steal, if you cheat, if you take something and you get busted for it, what, what do you get if you sin and you're beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So beloved, listen, not easy. Um, 
Whatever questions you have, Andy will answer them afterward. This is not easy. But in a complaining 21st century, if he told the slaves to do this, by implication, he tells employees to conduct themselves by obeying with this attitude and with this heart. We'll pick it up next week. Bow your head with me.